The Fake Show podcast welcomes our newest sponsor, one of the premier recording studios in Las Vegas, The Tone Factory. Also, thank you to the law firm of Hutchison and Stefan, Moonshot.com, The Craft House Brewery, Mr. Antenna, and Banger Brewing in downtown Las Vegas. It's The Fake Show with Jim Tofty. Music writer Mike Greenblatt had basically a front row seat at Woodstock and saw and heard everything over that long, crazy weekend in Bethel, New York in 1969. I've got Mike on the line right now to talk about his Woodstock book and all of the wild experiences and great music. Mike, hello. How are you? Hey, how's it going? Thanks for having me. Oh, yes. Welcome to the show. And, and believe me, having seen the Woodstock film several times and... And I don't know about you, but I, I just watched the uh, brand new, excellent PBS documentary. There always seems to be nooks and crannies of stories we never heard before. What was your journey like to even get to Bethel, New York? Well, we weren't going to go. We were going to go see Led Zeppelin in Asbury Park that weekend. But yeah. advertisements on the radio with all our favorite bands on one stage in one weekend, we had to go. So we bought our tickets, $17.50 for all three days, and we headed up the day before the festival started. Were you one of the first then? Because I know that you ended up in the first row. Well, it was it's figuratively the first row, not literally. Yeah, right. The 500,000 right. people, I think we were maybe, I don't know, maybe less than 100 people deep from the stage itself. Okay, because, you know, as the crowd started to grow, did you ever feel, you know, it, it, did it ever feel a little bit dangerous? Because with that many people, I don't care how peaceful you are, there seems to always be kind of a push towards the stage. It was an amazing feeling when uh, we went to sleep Thursday night before the festival, all right, right in front of the stage on the grass, and we got up Friday morning, and we turned around, and we freaked out at a sea of people. <laughs> Yeah. We couldn't believe it. Uh, but amazingly enough, everybody was friendly. And uh, when you think of 500,000 people with not enough food, water, bathrooms, and throw in bad weather and not one reported instance of violence, we hey, we're the peace and love generation, right? We proved our credentials that weekend. Yeah, and never since, that's for sure. Did you go with friends? I went with one guy, Neil. And the drama in the book comes on Sunday when Neil goes to find a phone booth to call our moms, because I didn't realize that my mom was freaking out watching the TV, seeing how uh, the news reports were all negative. It was declared a disaster area. Uh, right. She was so upset. I mean, she didn't let me go see the Beatles when I was 13 at Chase Stadium in 64, but she couldn't stop me from going to Woodstock. <laughs> and when I got home, after it was all over, uh, she, she hugged me and she cried and cried. I end the book with her tears as a metaphor for how that generation tried to understand us. Oh, it's amazing. So how long did you not speak to your mom after the Shea Stadium refusal? I was very upset at not going to see the Beatles. I really wanted to go see the Beatles. There are a lot of weird moments you talk about in the book, and one of the weirder ones had to be when political activist Abby Hoffman got on stage and got into it with the Who's Pete Townsend. Yeah, uh, luckily I found a kid that, I, uh, that was right there and witnessed that uh, I was sleeping at the time. 
Now, who came on at a ridiculously late hour? I was out completely. But this kid saw Abby Hoffman, political activist, who had been so helpful in the hog farm tent, feeding people and talking people down from bad trips. He really was a big, major factor in helping people cope. But then he got up and he started ranting a political diatribe, and Pete Townsend just wasn't having it. And he's no peace and love guy, Pete Townsend. <laughs> he him over the head with his guitar violently. And there just wasn't security to speak of, was there? There was no police. There was no security whatsoever. One of the problems when attending an event that is this large, and so, you know, it's literally the first time there was something like this, and you mentioned it, they ran out of food, so how did you survive? Well, the people that we were next to and the people that I ran into were so friendly and so nice. They fed me. They, they shared their water. They shared their pot. They made they they kept me warm. They built fires. Uh, I just subsisted on the largesse of my neighbors. I know there were a lot of townspeople who were dropping off food. Wasn't there a lady who uh, who helped you out in terms of food and other items? Yeah, the lady that gave me a beautiful loaf of bread uh, that I devoured also gave me the brown acid. <laughs> Which you gladly took? Oh, yeah, no doubt about it. It was a time of experimentation. I took the brown acid, and it culminated on Sunday with Joe Cocker's unbelievable set. I had never seen such a soulful, crazy front man like that. But then the acid kicked in, and the, the rains came, and the music stopped, and my friend Neil left me, and I was alone, and I got paranoid. And I started panicking, and it wasn't fun anymore. Oh, my gosh. You know, and I mean, I've heard great things about Joe Cocker's performance, along with people like Hendrix and Sly Stone and Santana's performances. The first day, I believe, was were the folky-type performances. What artist was it who, who really blew the roof off the joint and got everyone into it? Duh. Had to be Sly and the Family Stone, man. They were at the top of their game at that point. And and for me, an 18-year-old white kid from Newark, New Jersey, I had never seen or heard such music in my life. And I was, I mean, they came on at like three o'clock in the morning, and I was, I was just enraptured with their funk and dancing and throwing the peace sign up in the air like Sly instructed us to, and shouting that word higher. It was liberating. It was cathartic. It was hilarious. It was one of the best moments of Woodstock. It stayed so peaceful, like you say, there were no assaults or anything like that throughout the whole thing, that even Max Yasger himself had nothing but great things to say about all the kids who attended. Max is our hero. Uh, that's why I made sure to put his name as the cover, as the title of the book, because we got kicked out of Wallkill. They had 18 days to build the stage when Max yeah. said you could use my farm in Bethel. And then he had a deal with the townspeople, and he told those townspeople that our, our boys didn't fight and die in wars to, to, to protect our freedoms. And these, these kids are going to have their festival, and they're going to have it on our property. And he was ostracized in the community afterwards. They wouldn't buy his milk. He had to retire and move to Florida, where he died shortly thereafter from a heart attack in his 50s. You know, Mike, I'm I'm interviewing Melanie, who was there and performed. I don't know if you recall her performance, if you saw it, and what you could tell me about that. I fell in love with Melanie on Friday night. I was so close to the stage that I could see her stage fright. 
And she came out and sat down yeah. on that chair with a lone single spotlight on her where all the attention of 50 or 500,000 people, maybe it wasn't 500,000 on Friday night, but all those people centered upon her. And when she sang Beautiful People, that's when I fell in love with her. She was so brave and so beautiful and her voice was so strong i'll never forget it yeah it's amazing too because i've seen interviews with her over the years and she's so quiet and and proper english and everything like that and then she just belts it out i mean i've seen a performance with the edwin hawkins singer she's she's really amazing isn't she yeah i went to see her again at the capitol theater in Patek, new jersey on my birthday which i share with melanie february 3rd uh, she's always been one of my folky darlings. I can't wait to uh, get through your book. It, you, did you take several pictures, by the way, while you were there? Uh, I, yeah, sure. The camera, along with our tent and blanket and food and pot and books, were all in the car. We never made it back to the car. <laughs> four days. We didn't even know where the car was. So, although I didn't take pictures, my editor, Paul Kennedy, did a fabulous job with over 200 photographs, uh, many that you've never seen before, that really jump off the page, that really illustrate what was going on, keying in not only on the artists, but on the fans. You know, many of the artists told me personally the real show was in the audience that weekend. It's the great writer Mike Greenblatt, his uh, book, Back to Max, Yasger's Farm, available now at Amazon.com. A pleasure talking to you, Mike. Good luck with the book. Thanks so much for having me on. I really appreciate it. I love the fact that Mike's mom said no to him seeing the Beatles when he was 13, but he wasn't going to let this one pass him by. Also, I had no idea that Led Zeppelin was playing in New Jersey that same weekend. What, they couldn't have swung over to Bethel for a couple of songs? Another interesting story is that Joni Mitchell was supposed to play at Woodstock that weekend, but she didn't want to miss an appearance on the Dick Cavett show that following Monday night, and and when she saw the mess of a traffic scene at Woodstock, she decided to skip the show. Well, that brings us to the end of this episode of The Fake Show. I'm Jim Tofty. I'll see you back here next time. Take The Fake Show on the road by listening on SoundCloud, Stitcher, iTunes, and thefakeshow.com.